This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Right, well, I've got a pro tip for everybody. Don't decide to rearrange a podcast recording over Christmas so that you do it directly after a match where City's own mistakes saw them throw away a two-goal lead, turning it into a 3-2 defeat. Pardon my French, but Merry fucking Christmas, everybody. At least there's a straightforward game against a very impressive newly promoted team to come with the first-choice goalkeeper suspended and the back four at sixes and sevens to put everything right. And it's kicking off in just a few hours' time as well. What fun that's going to be. Also on this week's Blue Moon podcast, we'll be finding out more about a fan's community food bank project that's been set up at the Etihad to help those most in need and Howard Hawking will be back to review the whole of the last decade so stay tuned for that for the final time of 2019 we'll go into your questions for Ask the Panel as well I'm your host David Mooney and I have to say a big thank you for his hospitality today given the inconvenient timing of that Wolves match because this week's show is being recorded in Richard Burns's living room Richard good evening good evening David I love the um the most sort of uh, festively timed, other than your excellent Christmas podcast, but the most sort of festively timed match, uh, post-match podcast of the season, and the family-friendly status of it has gone out of the window <laughs> in the first 30 seconds. I thought, if, I thought if we're going to mark it as explicit, we might as well do it <laughs> straight from the off, you know. Um, so, first first question. Uh, we, we are literally, for everybody listening at home, we are, what, 20 minutes after full-time, a bit longer, half an hour or so. Um, what do you make of it? Um, very, very frustrating. I mean, on the, the one hand, the performance itself, I don't have, the overall performance, I don't have loads of concerns with because we played 77 minutes, well, plus stoppage time, with which there was a lot. Um, but nearly a full match there with 10 men against a physically imposing, um, sort of quite... Um, you know, a really hard-working team. That they, They're a very intense team. They really get at you anyway. Um, so to go into that with 10 men, I was playing mo- against that team with 10 men for the vast majority of the game, I actually thought City equipped themselves pretty well for the majority of it. But, of course, they had a 2-0 lead and they've managed to lose the game 3-2. Um, and there are there's more than one instance within those goals where you can look and say actually if it's not for a direct city error or, or a mistake from a city player then city still don't concede those goals and they win that game so it's a very very frustrating result the overall performance um i'm not going to get too het up about but the defeat just feels symptomatic of of this season to be fair um so yeah what I make of it is it's very frustrating. Questions have been raised in the past about Guardiola's decisions in-game. Um, what do you think of it at Wolves, given, I mean, Eric Garcia on, not necessarily a, 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 a bad move, given that City were down to, to 10 men at the time, um, but Riyad Mahrez off, Kevin De Bruyne off for, for Ilkay Gundogan when you know City needed something to kind of keep hold of the ball? Yeah, they weren't... Um, they, <laughs> they, they weren't immediately obvious changes when you're watching the game. I think usually as a fan, okay, none of us have got the tactical mind of Pep Guardiola. None of us see what goes on in training through the week. Yet most fans during a game generally get a feel for where changes might occur because you understand the flow of a football game. And I obviously watched the game with you and neither of us were pointing at those two players might be coming off. 
There was no suggestion in the commentary that either of them might have been removed. Following on social media, there's no City fans suggesting that change is coming. And so that one is it's sort of completely out of um, out of nowhere and completely out of sort of um, some pretty esoteric thinking from Pepper. Think that's just I don't know. It's it's hard to work out quite what he was thinking. I mean the the Garcia for Mares change. Like you say, you, you assume he's thinking of shoring it up, but you said to me during the game, if you want to shore it up in that kind of game, surely you do it by putting the extra man into midfield or putting Gundogan into midfield rather than three at the back and opening up your, your wide defenders a little bit. It was, it was, it was strange. I, I, can I, actually, un- I actually felt that the half-time substitution shouldn't have been Garcia on mm-hmm. to the pitch. It should have been Gundogan on to the pitch. Get Gundogan on earlier, but keep him on alongside the Bruyne. Exactly, exactly. And then I think the second half, I can see where he's coming from with taking De Bruyne off because you've got, I mean, I saw somebody on Twitter refer to it as cocky and I don't think it was that. I think it was more understanding that actually a 2-0 lead with 10 men at this stadium against a really good team is actually something now worth trying to hang on to rather than going gung-ho and pushing for more. Um, and obviously we've got a game in in less than two, well, in minutes, two days. a matter of minutes. Yeah, but you know, there's going to be, there's no, there's less recuperation time than any team I've ever had in the Premier League, I understand taking your best player off, or you know, one of your best players. Um, so I wouldn't go, again, I wouldn't sort of be too down on him for taking De Bruyne off. But when you add into it that Mahrez has already come off, it's losing more creativity. And you open yourself up that once a goal comes and that momentum shifts, how are you going to get it back? And obviously that was what we saw. Aguero, of course, was the sacrificial lamb when Edison was sent off. So that's that's another of your key players gone there. Uh, Speaking of the red card, um, any complaints? No, I mean... You could look at, um, you know, normally in that situation, you'd be analysing are they covering players? And I think you can argue that, um, forgive me, I can't remember who it was that was getting back. But there Walker, were... Walker, Walker, played, uh, Walker played him on side in the first instance by not stepping up with the rest of the defence. Yeah. And then it was Walker who was getting back with him. So there's, you, you can argue that there's a covering player there. Um, and obviously the contact from Edison is, is minimal. So if you were to argue it, I guess they're the grounds that you'd be going alongside. But, you know, I mean, I said to you, as, as soon as the incident is off here. So if instant reaction, that's what the ref's seeing. And there's no way that you'd expect a VAR review to overturn it. So no, I mean, Edison didn't argue it, did he? So there's your, your most telling point. It's, he stayed on the pitch long enough to see if the VAR overturned it, though. I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, obviously. But um, no, no, no real complaints. You... You complain with that comes at why we're being beaten so easily over the top again. When you you know Wolves are going to do that, and it's um, it's just it's not dealing with an obvious problem that's that's more a concern than the <laughs> any decision that's been made there. I think my issue with with the red card is what what grates a little bit is that Edison didn't make a challenge. He he actively tried not to make a challenge, and so what what has happened is he's been sent off for being a goalkeeper, and that like. He is denying a clear goal-scoring opportunity because the player's got the ball past him and he's going round him. He has made contact with him, so there is enough to send the player down. And it just, but it just feels like you know by by being in that position and standing your ground and trying not to to give the foul away, actively trying to let the player around you to score to save yourself for the for the remainder of the minute. It just it just feels a harsh red card on that front. But equally, if it happens at the other end and Patricio gets a yellow, you can, everybody's up in arms going, why on earth has he not been sent off? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I take your point, but I think this is one of those where it's... 
it's sort of rules are rules, and the, there are some things where there just has to be sort of no interpretation allowed for the referee. I think, and in in that situation where if the referee assesses that it's a, a clear goal scoring opportunity, then he has to make that decision. And so, yeah, I, I do take your point, but then you'll see countless examples every week of fouls being given where a player hasn't intended to make a foul. Um, and the punishment for those is a free kick or it might be a yellow card, depending on the severity. In this incident, the, the punishment for that offence is a red card. And so you just have to you just have to go with it, I think. Now, uh, we've been asking you all season, well, not all season, but the last last few weeks of the season, to uh, send in your own rubbish VAR jingles. Uh, the Wolves game, as it happens, gave us plenty of opportunity to throw one of these in. Uh, so uh, this one is by Alan Bates. Thank you very much. Take it away, Alan. Thank you very much, Alan. There we go. Um, Richard, you'll be amused. Uh, it's brilliant. Um, I'll be honest, I was on the podcast where you first put out the call for these jingles, uh, and I thought that you were just joking and that nobody would do it. And here we are a few weeks later, and I'm very, very wrong. Um, that... I'm, I'm just giving VAR the respect it deserves, if anything else. Yeah. Um, that one uh, is probably my favourite so far. That was particularly good. Thank you, Alan. Yeah. Um, so send in, send in more. Please do. Uh, at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter. You can get us through the website as well, bluemoonpodcast.com. Uh, but now it is VAR time. Um, first off, uh, the penalty decision uh, in the in the very first instance. We we, we talked about the, the red card issue. Should VAR have looked at it? They did look at it. Decided it was a red card. Um, penalty was was right to be overturned because it was uh, a goal kick was given and mm-hmm. then VAR turned it into a penalty. Yeah, it it got it right. I mean, I'm sure we'll have the same old conversation about how long it took or the consistency or the implementation of it should the referee be making the final decision by going using the pitch side monitors that doesn't get used in the Premier League for some reason but is there. It's the most redundant thing on a football pitch, well, in in the football stadium, I think. Um, But ultimately, in this instance, VAR worked because it got the decision right. Um, I can understand why, on first view, Atkinson didn't give it because Mares's tumble or jump does look theatrical. And maybe it was. There's only Mares who will know whether that was a real reaction to what he felt. But what I would say is, I think when people see players react like that to what appears innocuous contact, his foot was stood on. Football studs or blades hurt, and the boots that they wear are like paper thin. It doesn't matter who you are, but when you're running at a decent bit of pace and you feel that kind of sharp instant pain on your foot, you're going to yelp, aren't you? Or you're going to react to it in some way. And I would think that a jump out the way is a pretty standard reaction to that. Um, so I'm not even convinced that really Mahrez's fall was theatrical, but even if it was, um, and I hope it wasn't because I hate that, but even if it was, it doesn't negate the fact that he was fouled. Um, and I also found it really odd that the commentators for like the first four or five replays were talking about the tug on the shoulder. It's like, sure, you look at the full incident, that isn't what he's claiming, it's the treading on the foot. It was so, a foul. So how about to retake it? Because Bernardo Silva was encroaching just as much as, as Connor Cody was, but he just didn't get to the ball. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very odd area of it, but I suppose the obvious um, the, the point there is that Wolves benefited from their encroachment, and so I suppose that's that's what you're punishing, um, and you can't 
just let it go because somebody else did it. Um, you, it, I mean, it's an odd one. It, it, it does fall into a, a really odd area because they have both committed the same offence at the same time. Um, but yeah, on the on the basis that Wolves have benefited from it, and it's not the first time we've seen that law applied this season. It, hopefully, it just gets to a point where players stop taking the risk and stop encroaching because it is remember, being spotted. Do you remember what FIFA's uh, response to to encroachment was to try and stop it? No, that, it was it was the suggestion. I don't know how far down the line it got, but that all penalties, whatever happened from from the kick, it was a dead ball. So if the goalkeeper saved it, it became a dead ball from the goalkeeper. If <laughs> if it if it went behind, it's obviously a goal kick or a corner. Uh, or if the player hits the post, it's a dead ball to the defending team. Just so that encroachment doesn't matter. <laughs> That's an extreme way of dealing with what has always been. Um, a fairly fairly innocuous thing fair, yeah yeah that I, I can't think of a comparative with that it's bizarre so still on VAR um, should it have intervened when Benjamin Mendy was trying to shepherd the ball behind in Wolves' equaliser um, arguable I would say what uh, if that had been given as a foul <clears throat> I don't think Traore would have had too many complaints I think what Traore did was very similar to what he did to Sterling in, at the other end when we got that last minute free kick that Sterling hit the bar with he's he's done the same thing Mendy stays on his feet because he's I don't know he's obviously trying to be stronger than Traore and just fails with that would Mendy but, have got a free kick there if he was trying to defend the ball rather than shepherd it behind I mean I don't know why he's trying to shepherd it behind because it would have been a corner yeah. so that makes no sense either but if he was actually trying to get to get around the ball and, and get rid of it and Traore did that and he and you know he's impeded to which Traore gets the ball would he have then had the free kick rather than because he wasn't actually actively trying to do something with the ball, the referee's gone, wow, well, you know, you've you brought it on yourself sort of thing. Possibly. Um, and yeah, I, I could see that being the case. I suppose that if he was being more active, his body shape would be different. You could say that if he was trying to clear it, he'd be less sort of sturdy and well-balanced. So Traore would probably knock him over and that would make it look more of an offence. Also, um, if he was trying to clear it, he might have cleared it, given he got there first. That's that's a good point. If he tried to do anything, <laughs> anything at all, then we might not have conceded that goal. Um, it was... Ultimately, it was just really, really poor, though. I've no... Um, I've no real complaints with that one. I think it's... Yes... It could be given as a foul, but I don't think it's one where you would always look at it and say that every referee would see it as a foul. So, I, you know, I, I'm sort of OK with it. And my bigger issue comes on, on what on earth was Mendy thinking. So we touched briefly on the Sterling penalty or the Sterling penalties. What is it with this squad? Can, can none of them, except for Gundogan, take a decent penalty kick? It is... Bizarre that a group of wonderfully, wonderfully talented footballers who spend every single day working on kicking a football, and you would imagine there's a good number of them practice taking penalties every day, of which Sterling must be one of. You know, he, he must take quite a lot of penalties a day, I would think. He's practicing shooting every day, but when it comes to it, it more often than not, he doesn't seem to hit them very well. And then he pops up with one like he did in the cup final against Chelsea. I don't get yeah. it. Top bins, as he said after the game. It was um, under the most amount of pressure. Um, I don't know. I don't know whether it's just a mentality thing now that we've got such a bad record with them that 
it always feels like it's sort of in the balance. But you are massively, the odds are massively in your favour when you're stepping up to take a penalty and you wouldn't know it watching our players take them, would you? Even the one Gundogan scored at weekend, Schmeichel got a finger to. I mean, it was a decent enough penalty, but, um, you know, it wasn't perfect. It could have I, been saved. Mm, I disagree because I think if a goalkeeper goes the right way, gets a hand on it and it still goes in, it's probably a decent kick. Yes, but you're part of the goalkeepers' union, <laughs> aren't you? So you would speak on sort of on on side of goalkeepers there in a way. There's Mooney mentioning he's a goalkeeper. If anybody's got that in the bingo, um, <laughs> that's that's one right there. Um, speaking of of the Leicester penalty, uh, would you would you believe it? A good old fashioned penalty decision. Player gets fouled in the area, referee gives it, and then that's just that. <laughs> yeah, and it was clear as day, wasn't it? That one. So yeah, uh, I'd I'd almost forgot what key incidents and games were like without VAR. Uh, so that was a nice one. Now, well, I want to talk about City's defending. Um, Do we would, have would you Would you be surprised? <laughs> um, because I thought, I, 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 when Vardy opened the scoring for Leicester uh, in the game at weekend, I, I kind of had a bit of sympathy for Guardiola because I, I looked at, at the players that Guardiola had available, the, the style of football that he wants to play, and without changing his team completely in order to try and move Kyle Walker inside to deal mm-hmm. with, with Vardy and whatnot, then without doing any of that, he kind of his hands forced. He just kind of accept that Vardy's going to get in behind and, and deal with it as it comes. And I thought City, apart from that one occasion and then that one where Vardy almost made it 2-0, mm. I thought they dealt with it very, very well. And I thought they looked very good defensively. And then throw forward you know, a few days, the goalkeeper gets sent off inside 12 minutes, things fall apart and... Wolves were just putting pressure on that City box and it felt like the wheels were ready to fall off at any given stage and then it happened in the 88th and 90th minute. Yeah, I think the the defending against Leicester was was very, very good against a team that have a very, very particular attacking threat and have proved themselves this season to be a, a really, really good team. Um, most teams will concede a chance to Jamie Vardy in, in, in a Premier League game because... It's unrealistic to go a Premier League game against the team that are second place without giving up a chance. And they just happen to use their most effective weapon to get it against us. So um, I know that's really sort of unscientific and you can always look at what you could have done better. But sometimes you just have to acknowledge that your opponent did something well. And, and Leicester used their most potent attacking threat brilliantly. And it, Vardy did what he does. It was a great finish. So um, the rest of the game, yeah, City, I think, dealt with Leicester's threat really, really well. The way they mostly dealt with that was by just controlling the game. They didn't Leicester didn't have chance to create many chances because City was so so in control. Is that um, is that why it surprises you then that Guardiola was happy to let Wolves have the ball, even a man down? Yeah, um we've we've proven very susceptible all, from the vast majority of this season to those balls over the top. Um and I mean, at the risk of really stating the obvious, but when you're a man down and you, you know, your opponent has one player more than you and you let them have more of the ball than you ordinarily would, then you at some point they're going to have space, more space to operate in. And they did clip a few balls over the top. Obviously, that was where the red card came from in the first place. Uh, and they tried it a few more times. Um, but just getting out wide, the, the cause of problems. And although I thought we dealt with them quite well as a team. Obviously, there were individual mistakes. But even thinking back over it, a lot of our defending was in the box, sort of emergency defending. It wasn't It wasn't stopping the threat with sort of effective pressing. It was 
Well, it was very un-City, like, of waiting for the threat to be in the box, clear it, and then reset, wasn't it? Um, I, I wonder whether fatigue is a huge, huge part of that at this stage, to be honest. Particularly, you know, again, 80 minutes more against a team with, a, with an extra man in a particularly packed sort of fixture schedule. I think they can be forgiven for being a bit fatigued and trying to deal with that threat. In, in a way, way that is less is, energy yeah. sapping. Where does this week leave two players in particular? We've talked about Mendy already, mm-hmm. but uh, throw into the mix Nicholas Ottomendi, um, who I think in the kindest possible way didn't have his finest performance at, at Molyneux. No, I mean, Ottomendi's um, long-term, he hasn't got a long-term in City, has he? And the only reason that he's playing so much this season is because of Laporte's injury. And obviously at one point, well, I mean, Stones um, has now been injured twice this season already. So that is affording Otamendi a lot of playing time that he wouldn't ordinarily get. Um, You go back to the summer, City, I think, were it not for company deciding to move on, City would have been more than happy to let Otamendi go. And we can start to look at, as has been discussed of all season, was City's inactivity in the transfer window in, in that position the right approach? It's dead easy to say now that no, it wasn't because we were always at risk of what happens if one of them gets injured. Um, is not a top-level defender anymore. He had one really, really good season under Pep. And he was. We can't forget that he was fantastic in the in the, the 100-point season. He's an outlier though now. Yeah, massively. Um, he's... He's regressed and it doesn't look like he's going to step back up to the level that we need him to be at because what he's reverted to is the player that he always was. He's not just he's not just gone backwards. It's not just a player getting older or slowing down. Otamendi was always a defender who, yeah, he can make a tackle and, yeah, he can sort of do that last line defending in the box. I don't think anybody would question that he's capable of that. He did it plenty tonight against Wolves. The issue is when somebody's running at him, his decision-making is atrocious. He dives in, he gives away fouls or he, he gets beaten and leaves one defender dealing with a, a, a fast attacker. Any player that's got pace running at Otamendi is, would fancy the chances. And we, we've seen it again tonight. And it's a shame because it's, you know, it's no lack of effort on his part. It's just the player he is, but he is he's regressed back. That's always what he was and he's gone back to it. Now I want to I want to look at some positives for the week because uh, Riyad Mahrez I thought was very unlucky to be hooked at half time mm-hmm. against against Wolves. He had a great game against Leicester. Um, he, he's kind of continued his great start without much, certainly not much momentum in his performances because he, he seems to get a decent performance and then it like something happens that means that he's not that he doesn't get one in the next game. Mm. Um, and he got a bit of luck against Leicester, but he, he's kind of deserved it. Well, I mean. He did get a little bit of luck because you know the goal was deflected, but his performance was was fantastic, and he was a player who, in that moment, grabbed the game by the scruff of the neck. And so, I know it's again, it's a bit of an obvious thing to say, but if he doesn't take that shot, then the, there's no deflection to score from. It's a good bit of play that leads to it. Um, he was sort of worth more goals, I think, against Leicester. I mean, he didn't score them, so you you have to put them away to deserve them, I suppose. But his all-round performance, he was the player for a large part of that game that was really driving it. 
Um, obviously, De Bruyne comes away by the end of the game. He's man of the match because he's the one that, when he really wants to grab a game by the scruff of the neck, he can just do it. But, but you, you think of like we talked earlier in the season. It was bizarrely the reverse Wolves game where mm-hmm. Mares was isolated on one side and people were really giving him a lot of a lot of flack. But actually, City were just they were just not giving him any space to work in mm-hmm. against Leicester. De Bruyne kept taking up positions that opened up all sorts of space for Mares, and look what happens when those two work well together. It really brings the best out of Mares and and De Bruyne, you know, is the kind of player that can that can lift anyone around him. But I think back to so many times last season when obviously Mares wasn't quite clicking with the team, and the frustration from De Bruyne I thought was always a lot more visible if Mares missed him with a pass or made a run and De Bruyne De Bruyne read it wrong and played a ball that went out of play. That happened quite a lot at stages last season, and he was getting very visibly frustrated with Mares. This season, we've seen, like uh, like against Leicester, De Bruyne bringing Mahrez into play and then Mahrez absolutely relishing the responsibility that he was given. Chilwell didn't know what to do with him. And it's like every time, from minute one, every time we could get the ball out wide, we were looking for Mahrez rather than going to the other wing. And the other game that really stands out in my memory of particularly the, the interplay between De Bruyne and Mahrez was the Everton away game this season, which was probably until the Leicester game, probably Mahrez's best performance for City. Um, and again, he was in step with De Bruyne, literally from the first minute. Um, and it, it's really good to see, it's really encouraging, but you're right, he does get unlucky. In any, maybe with the exception of Liverpool, in any other Premier League team, Mahrez would still be the standout player, and I, I fully believe that. His problem with City is there are some other exceptional footballs in his position and if we're honest better players Sterling's a better player than him I think um, Bernardo at his best is a better player uh, one thing I have to say for Mahrez as well because we always used to speak about this with Bernardo Mahrez has a first touch on par with Bernardo we used to say that Bernardo's was the best that we'd ever seen in a City player Mahrez's first touch is easily on par he can make anything stick to his foot it's incredible <laughs> Now, the latest stats from the Trussell Trust, who are the charity behind food banks in the UK, show that between April and September this year, more than 823,000 emergency food parcels were handed out to people in crisis in the whole of the country. More were given out in the northwest than in any other region, and it's the busiest six months the charity has ever seen. Food banks are always in need of donations, and from New Year's Day, City fans are being urged to help those who are less fortunate by bringing a small donation with them to the Etihad on match days. I've been speaking to Alex, who runs the MCFC Fans Food Bank Support Scheme, to find out more. It became pretty obvious that the time for sitting about was over. Um, People who are in work are starving you know people can't afford food the stat which has been bandied around recently sort of sums it up is that there's more food banks in the UK now than there are branches of McDonald's um, so uh, when you know things like that abstaining is not an option anymore in my opinion and we've got a captive audience at City you know it's easier to organize people when they're already organized into a group rather than setting up a stall somewhere on a road and trying to get people to come along You've got 50 or 1,000 people walking past every week. You've got a huge Asda superstore next, next door. Um, if you can plant something in between those two, it's the perfect place to do it, and people don't have to go out their way. Uh, if you find a way that you can give people the opportunity to do something good in a way which you know they don't have to go 10 miles out their way for, then I think they will, and the response so far suggests that that's the case. <laughs> 
it's it's not actually that what the scheme is it's not actually a food bank it's not somewhere you can go to get food parcels no it's not it's so we are working with manchester central food bank who are based on oxford road um it was the obvious one to pick because the so the manchester united fans food bank are working with manchester south central in hume um so rather than double up uh, it's better to go the different ones sort of spread the help out as much as possible um so everything that's donated on the day we will store until the week and then the food bank people will come pick it up they kind of weigh it measure it out into different parcels depending on what it is and distribute it according to need so what can people give because it's not just food is it no it's not just food um on that note though it's not all food either it's uh, non-perishable stuff so you know not a box of meat or a veg box or something so like that which things that will go off yeah. yeah nothing like that so stuff in tins packets that sort of thing, uh, whether that's instant mashed potato or pasta or tin of beans. Uh, but food banks, unfortunately, aren't just for food anymore because, you know, if people can't afford to eat, they can't afford lots of other things as well. So it's toiletries, uh, whether it's shower gel, toilet roll, anything like that. Um, anything sanitary is also, again, unfortunately, baby foods, nappies, because now we live in a country where baby food banks are a thing which again uh, sort of makes my blood boil and I'm sure it does with a lot of other people as well. Um, so it's the perfect way to help. You know, the thought of young family with a kid who can't afford to eat, feed the kid all themselves, it should be enough to hopefully get people into a routine of sticking something in their pocket for the game and dropping it off. You know, it doesn't take a lot of effort and it helps a massive amount. And it, it is as simple as that, isn't it? It's, it's the case of, you know, you come in here anyway, Bring, yeah. bring a tin out of the cupboard, bring something out of the cupboard. Exactly, bring something out of the cupboards. If you get the tram in, stay on one more stop and get off at the Vela Park stop, bob into Asda, get something, bring it along, it's on the way. You know, what's one more tram stop and five minutes out of your way? It, it's easy, you leave it with us and we'll do it. Um, we'll do everything for you. And then because of the food bank, how they work, because they're a charity, they have to weigh everything, so it'll say how much we've gathered in there'll be pictures and you, there'll be loads of stuff throughout so you, you'll be able to see directly um, how much of an impact it has and yeah like I say it's such for such a simple thing it's an outsized impact you know they they say for the sake of five pounds worth of food that feeds a family for a week the way they do it you know it's it's such an easy thing to do and if you can't make it on match days or you and you still want to help you can donate on their website we've got a link on the twitter account or you can google manchester central food bank and it's it's right there and it takes a second and for the cost of a five or what's that you know for a lot of people who can afford food it's it's an easy thing to do to help people who can't what is the, what's the social medias for? uh it's on twitter at the moment it's at mcfc food bank simple as that simple as that we should point out as well that this as much as it's a city thing yeah it's not it's not food just for city fans that would, no it's that, not. that would be insane no it's not like um like i said earlier i think city was the way that made sense to organize it um it's it's called mcfc fans food bank support because of how we're organizing it, it will mostly be city fans donating but you know we are part of a society you know our, our club is the, the operative word is club right we're part of the community we haven't from the start and I think we've got a responsibility, much like I think the club has a responsibility to the community. Um, I personally think they abdicate that very slightly, but that's a different issue. Um, however, we as fans can't choose to abdicate it. Um, 
and I think perhaps this should have been done earlier. Uh, you know, it's as much on me as anyone else that we didn't, but now it's time to do it. And I think, I hope, I expect City fans to respond and help out the people of Manchester because we all live here, you know. The Everton game is the first one. Uh, do you know where you'll be yet? Um, not exactly, but it will be somewhere between Asda and the ground. So I'm thinking somewhere maybe on the end of, is it called Howard Bernstein Way or whatever it's called. Um, so it's a lot of footfall. Um, the idea being, put it in front of people, even if they don't bring it on New Year's Day. We've got another game on Saturday, I think it's Port Vale in the Cup. Um, so maybe if they don't bring it, people see it and bring it next time. There's always another game. There's always another game. There's always another game. And I think it's a good time to start it because it's a new year. Um, you know, lots of people, as I alluded to earlier, after the election result, I've seen it, I've heard it from people I work with, my friends, people thinking, oh, what can we do? What can we do? Because we, you know, we're heading into sort of a five year long winter uh, with no Christmas in the middle of it. Um, so this is something you can do and we'll be there at home games, week, weekend home games to start with, depending on how it goes, we'll try and maybe expand and have two sites at the ground or try and get something going on weeknights as well. Um, another thing we'll be doing is, again, because we're part of a larger society and a community, is lots of other clubs have it. So uh, Everton's a great example. It was, we took inspiration from the uh, Scousers, basically, because they've got a great thing going over there. So they are coming to help us on New Year's Day. They're going to bring a donation. And I'm going to be sending people who go to away games with donations to other clubs, food banks as well, because it all helps to build a network of people helping each other um, in a time when perhaps help is in shorter supply than it should be. And of course, there'll be a lot of people listening to this now that will go, actually, that's something I'd quite like to get involved with. Yeah. Uh, how can they do that? Well, so at the moment, I'm building a list through the Twitter account. So if you send me a direct message on there, um, myself or one of the other people on there will pick it up and we're creating a list. There's basically three categories, well, no, four categories help. Um, first one is match day help. So if you're up for occasionally giving up a couple of hours before the game to collect donations, chat to people, because it's not just about collecting cans and putting them in the thing. It's about talking to people, talking about why we're doing it. And Spreading the Just word. chatting to them about the day, you know, trying to get, get people involved, because again, community, society, right? Uh, the second one, as I mentioned a minute ago, is if you go to an away game and it's a club who've got an active fan food bank and you're up for, you know, obviously we'll fund it and give you it and you take it along and talk to them and get a picture and just build those bonds, that'd be perfect. The third way is realistically we want to get if you or you know anyone who has a van who is available on match day that is important because otherwise it's just a pile of you know UHT milk and sort of pasta shells sat in crates uh, outside city and we can't really do anything with it um, and the fourth one is storage again uh, we're still looking into how it's best to store it um, it'll only need to be stored in between the match day and the week because the food bank people will come along with their truck and pick it up um, but you know the more options we have the better basically that goes for the vans and the storage because you know people aren't available some days or you know so the more options we have the better basically if you want to get involved um, just yeah drop us a direct message on at MCFC food bank and we will talk it through <laughs> For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. 
There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Alex from the Manchester City Fans Food Bank Support Scheme there. Um, now, Richard, uh, as I said at the start of the show, uh, Sheffield United to come this weekend. It's a nice, easy game to, to go into without your, without your main goalkeeper and with your best defender injured and, you know, form a bit up and down. <laughs> You say main goalkeeper, only competent goalkeeper. Um, <laughs> yeah, listen, there's, um, there is no game that is ideal that starts less than 48 hours after your last one finished. But Sheffield United, um, are, they're a very good team. Um, one of the maddest stats of the season so far, I think, is that as a newly promoted club, they've yet to lose an away game, which, you know, we talk about... Um, or every season, it's that sort of cliche that when you're coming up, or if you want any level of success, you need to make your home ground your fortress and and, and all that stuff. Um, and they've made <laughs> away games their, their their speciality. I mean, that's not to to slag off what they're like at home by any stretch, but they're a good team. I think they surprised a lot of people with how they play because they are intense and they do. Um, I mean, sort of using cliches a lot tonight, but they do get in your face and all the rest of it. But they've got a lot more about them than that. They really, really play the ball around nicely. Centre backs that you can't really predict where they'll be. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so does City. To be fair, <laughs> <laughs> very different reasons. I don't join the club. I mean, come on. <laughs> we've we've been doing that for years. Um, the the it's just not it's not the ideal game at all. I think they will. They've had a really good approach to games against top teams. Um, we saw them in their game at Bramall Lane against Liverpool when the only thing that stopped them taking anything from that game was a, a sort of want-to-season horrendous mistake by the goalkeeper. Which, Funny up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, of course. But, um, you know, any, any other shot this season, he takes that one easily and he just didn't get his body behind it and they were unlucky um, You alluded to it there um, this is the shortest ever time between one Premier League game finishing and another Premier League game starting for one particular club another record for City An unwelcome one <laughs> a very unwelcome one the way things are going I mean it's madness isn't it it's, it's not right to expect anybody to be able to perform at such a high level. Um, basically, this is in the name of entertainment, isn't it? That's that's why these games are as they are. That's why our game was 7.45 on a Friday at Christmas, so it could be shown on TV. And this is, you know, to be fair, this is the deal that you make when you accept hundreds of millions of pounds for your product to be broadcast on TV. When you buy into that, of course it's the deal that you make. So to a point, you have to accept it. But there comes a point where you say, this is affecting your chances of this being entertaining. And okay, the Sheffield United game isn't being broadcast live in this country, but it will be elsewhere. The the product will be affected by this because City are going to have to rotate, so you won't be getting all of the best players play this game. And the best players that do are going to surely, surely be playing to a decreased standard. And if they're not going to be shattered for this one then they'll be shattered for Everton on New Year's Day. Exactly. And I guess maybe you can flip that on its head and say, but it increases the chances of an upset, which, I mean, to be fair, how much of a big upset would it actually be at the moment? Bravo's in goal. (laughs) So I'm upset. (laughs) So those chances have increased. Um, But, you know, I suppose you could say, increased chances of Sheffield United coming to the Etihad and winning. So maybe that's 
good for the the product um to, to use those words but it's just it's not good we are turning footballers into commodities and at this stage you can say that yeah well squads can cope with playing every three days when they've had hundreds of millions of pounds invested in them but actually when it's less than 48 hours you are talking about things that actually do seriously affect performance levels it is scientifically not possible to make a maximum recovery chances of injury increase and it's just it's not right it's not right in the name of entertainment but of course very few people outside of the game will have any sympathy with footballers being well paid as they are to to have to go and play a couple of games in in two days but it's it's not the right thing to be doing. Sign that deal with the devil, though, don't you? you, do. um, you do. Everton have uh, just changed their manager as well, just in time for, for this one. Um, you don't fear Everton like you used to, but maybe you do a bit. Well, at least he's got his uh, his first win out of the way, so he's not coming to City for that. Um, they're an odd team, aren't they, Everton? They, they always feel like the team that should deliver more. Um, and they always seem to somehow... Um, underproduce Ancelotti will be a very very interesting appointment there because for as good as he is and the reputation that he has in the game he's also in recent years and his last couple of jobs developed a bit of a reputation as being a manager who doesn't go in and shake things up he's a great man manager who actually has a great knack for rather than having his own style and philosophy is the word we use these days isn't it He's very good at going in and continuing with another manager's and just just not shaking things up. Um, but that's not what Everton need. Everton do need a massive kick up the arse um, and, and to change the way that, maybe not necessarily their ideas about how to play, but those ideas weren't working. Do you remember the um, days when they used to say that teams needed an away game at City to get themselves going? <laughs> it feels horribly ominous, that, doesn't those, it? <laughs> yeah, they, those days might... Um, it might be sort of on the on the return with the way things are going now. Um, it, by rights, this is a game that City should win. You know, we're still we are still third in the league. This feels like a bad season, and it is a bad season. Let's have that right. It's a bad for, season in comparison to where they've been, and it's a bad season for expectations and where they're aiming to be. You know, it's um, it's a huge, huge drop off, but we are still on paper. Uh, well, not on paper. Sorry, on form the third best team in the country. And the evidence of this week would suggest that actually we're probably the second best. We're a better team than Leicester. And I think the league table will bear that out by the end of the season. Um, so we should still be beating teams at home when those teams are, let's have it right, sort of in a relegation battle. I don't think anybody thinks Everton will go down, but they are in those places where you'd have to say that's what they're trying to get away from. Um, so it, it should be a home win. But if you ask me, am I confident? No. <laughs> Do you remember what happened last time City played Everton at home on New Year's Day? Danny Mills. Was it the... No, sorry. What, I mean, that was astonishing, Danny Mills. As that well. wasn't New uh, Year's that Day. That wasn't New Year's Day. Oh. It, we, we, we saw the final goal of the 2006-07 home season. Oh, wow. That's depressing. Georgia Samaras. That is depressing. Everton, wow. New Year's Day. What was the one where we... I get so confused with disappointing Everton games. What was the one where we kicked off in the earliest ever Premier League game? That was a Sunday. That was uh, Vassell uh, and Cole year. Oh, okay. So that was, that was possibly the year before. And then there was, and I'm fairly sure this is right, the coldest ever Premier League game. Oh, yeah, that was... Uh, was that the Julian Lescott 
two no, goals that, against us? No, that was um, Colo Torre was sent off in the last few minutes, and it was the day. It was the game before Christmas because if City won, so many games had been abandoned elsewhere. That City would have been top for Christmas, and it had been the first time in and the Premier League era. There was the. The one that I think still riles me <laughs> with the Tim Cahill last minute header. That was every season between 2004 <laughs> and 2009. There was there was one under Hughes um, because I remember my dad's reaction as soon as it went in. Words that he's never repeated since and unfortunately uh, never said them before, but his reaction as soon as Cahill scored, I think I kicked the chair in front of me and dad shouted, he's got to go get Mourinho in whatever the cost and that was when I knew that he'd lost the plot because that's not a dad thing to say as, as well you know All right, well, before you dob him in any further uh, no wins on the charity bet for last week's show so the total stands at £430 for the season uh, two games this week but one last chance to add some to the tally before New Year as William Hill is giving each of us a £10 correct score single on City's games with the winnings going to the Christie a cancer hospital in Manchester now uh, you'll have noticed there's only two of us on this week's show and three bets so I got in touch with Howard before the Wolves game uh, to ask him what he uh, what he thought for Sheffield United. He said three uh, one for this one, which is nine to one and ninety pounds. And then for Everton, he said three one as well, which is seventeen to two and eighty five pounds. Uh, Richard, what are you having for uh, the first game, Sheffield United? I'm although I'm I can't say I'm confident, but um, I am going to go against myself sort of and go two 0 to City. 2-0 to City is uh, 5-1, so uh, £50 if you're right. What are you having for uh, Everton? Uh, following Howard's um, consistency, I'm going 2-0 against Everton as well. 2-0 uh, against Everton is 6-1, to one, so £60 if you're right on that one. Uh, I've gone for, uh, again, we've we, we've gone consistent <laughs> on this week, because I've gone 2-1 in both games, uh, which is 17-2 uh, in both games, so uh, £85 if I'm right in uh, both of them. Uh, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble, prices can change, and for more on responsible gambling, have a look at begambleaware.org. Now it's our last show of 2019, and here's Howard Hocking to look back at what the last decade has changed for City fans. <laughs> Quite an eventful decade, whatever this decade is called. We started the period playing Manchester United in the two-legged semi-final League Cup tie as underdogs, put to the sword by the league champions eventually. We finish it about to do the same, not as underdogs, far from it. United are over 3-1 to one just to win their home leg, much longer odds to actually qualify. Things have changed a tad over the past decade. OK, not quite. The decade started with an easily forgettable 1-0 FA Cup win at Middlesbrough, but much of what was to follow would last long in the memory. After all, it's hard to pack in a decade in City's short history into one piece. I could totally ignore Pellegrini's final two seasons and I'd still get nowhere near. Had Pep's first season too, if you want, and I'm struggling nevertheless. It's been quite the ride. The country went to the dogs, but City flourished most of the time. We welcomed Carlos to Manchester, we knocked Ferguson off his perch, and we entered a derby as favourites in his lifetime, time after time after time. Quite simply, City were the most successful English team of the decade. More league points, more titles, more league cups, more FA Cups, if we ignore Arsenal, more iconic moments. We were probably expected to win more, but United showed that winning consistently is not easy, however much money you've got. 
and football would not be the greatest sport on earth if it was predictable. And the decade was about records, about breaking them repeatedly. Maybe some of City's own records were not the hardest to beat, but they beat plenty of top flight records too, just for good measure. The decade saw his witness the club's record goal scorer. It saw us retain the trophy for the first time, changed the mentality of the club. The Centurions were born, something never witnessed before in the top flight. Not had the country witnessed a domestic treble either, and to think some called it bittersweet, morons. A record-winning run and more points than any other club over the decade by some distance, about 80 points to be precise. Wembley a second home, averaging more than one visit a season. The 17-18 season alone saw City trail for 153 minutes all season, get the most points, wins, away wins, away points, goals and the best goal difference ever. Plus that record winning run, biggest points gap to second and even 82.5% possession in one game. And it was a decade that finally saw the launch of the women's team in 2014, who have since won the selection of silverware as they begin their own journey, buoyed by the long-awaited growth of the women's game as a whole, as shown by the Etihad and Stamford Bridge hosting games this year. Now of course there were lows, most of them were at the hands of Wigan Athletic. The FA Cup final defeat to them, followed by the expected dismissal of Mancini, was the lowest ebb for me. Not scoring the league against United after being two up at half-time hurt for many, many days, as have all the Champions League exits. And then there was the Pellegrini lull as his influence quickly waned. And so to the beginning of that decade. As a fan base, we were finally beginning to get comfortable in our skins with the new money in our club, the expectations, the fact that we would never be anyone's second club again, not that we should care. City meant business for once, as shown by links with an exciting young Spanish player called Isco. In those first few months, City would lose 1-0 in the derby at the Etihad, and the decade would continue to produce derby results that did not follow logic. City ended the decade with one victory in five at the Etihad, but were dominant at Old Trafford on many occasions. Go figure. The journey began with United, though, for me. Truly began. For it was that semi-final victory over United in the 2011 FA Cup that suggested a power shift in Manchester. Ferguson would have one last hand to play before retiring, but once he had gone and sabotaged his club's future, the shift was complete. Don't be surprised if United go a decade without finishing ahead of City in the league. And if I'd even suggested that at any point in the 1980s, 1990s or even the noughties, I would have been led away in a straitjacket. But back again to the start. Mark Hughes is not where this story begins, as he was rightly sacked as a new decade approached. Roberto Mancini waited in the wings, or at Gary Cook's house to be precise, and took over the reins. Mancini's remit was simple, to put City on the map, and he did it. Mancini changed City's history, then burnt his bridges. Pellegrini was the high-class, long-term caretaker, who for one season matched anything that any other manager had produced. But as West Ham are discovering right now, he was hard to define. And then there's Pep, of course, constantly stressed, intense and seemingly on the edge. He seeks an impossible perfection and occasionally gets close. All our managers have helped tell a remarkable and eventful story. Pellegrini will most easily be forgotten, bookmarked between two of the most important managers in our history, but he deserves credit too. But more than anything, more than points gained, trophies won, new supporters attained, the decade gave us one thing above all, above every other team. It gave us one iconic moment, one greater than this or any other club could ever hope to match. Arsenal's 89 title triumph was the epitome of pure drama, but it doesn't hold a candle to what happened in May 2012. 44 years of hurt, the title taken from United's grasp in almost impossible circumstances. 
from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs in one second with one swing of a boot. All played out and recollected on the burgeoning social media scene, giving us a lifetime of videos, memes and memories. Now Leicester City's title triumph was astonishing of course, but some people seemed to struggle to distinguish between achievements and moments. There was no iconic moment for Leicester, though the second that Premier League trophy was first held aloft by the captain will live with them forever I imagine. But it's not Aguero versus QPR, it's a nine month long story, not a single moment. This was a seminal moment in English football. But of course there were other moments that will live in my memory as long as I have one. Yaya's semi-final and final goals in 2011. Even his Carabao Cup final goal, or whatever the tournament was called in those days. His goal against Newcastle when I could say without fear and embarrassment that I'd never loved another human being as much as I did right then. The four months of Aguero and Negreda was as good as it got. Gabriel Jesus creating history and the Centurions. That would make a great title for a book. And then last season's running. Neither Liverpool or City dropped a point after March the 3rd and every few days there seemed to be a crucial game. It could never match the stress of the 2012 running, but it was close. Then Vinny stepped up and history was made again. How do you explain a moment like that? There can be no such thing as fate or destiny. It's utterly illogical. But moments like that make me question everything. Moments like his header against United in 2012, the slip, John Stone's goal line clearance, Jesus' last gasp, Chipped goal, Yaya's magic moments and more. So much more. The moments were cities on the whole, but Gerard's slip must make the list. It's weird to say out loud, and I never thought it would, but this was City's decade above anyone else's. Everybody knows their name now, don't they? That banner at Old Trafford is but a distant memory, and the faux sympathy and patronising put-downs have been replaced by a sudden interest in geopolitics and past history. And what's more, for some of our players it was their decade too. Sergio Aguero, David Silva, Vincent Company, and a whole host of more. But for those three especially, for the first two and to a great extent the latter two, their achievements spanned the decade almost perfectly. They spent this decade changing the club's history forever, living the same dream as us, travelling the same journey but up close and personal. For Sergio he scored 39 more goals than any other player this decade and two more than Burnley Football Club. For David he has assisted 27 more goals than anyone else this decade. But his contribution, like Sergio or Vinny, and hundreds of others that helped this decade, cannot be measured or described by stats alone. The decade has ended with the odd struggle or two. City are only averaging 2.1 points in the league so far this season. We must buckle up and breathe in for the inevitability of a Liverpool title triumph and all that that entails. Unless City decide to write one more ridiculous script, though I think this one is beyond them to be honest. As a fan, it's clearly not been a stress-free ride. Being a football fan rarely is, but with the growth of social media, the whole decade felt like a struggle online, firefighting on behalf of those that run our club. But as fans, we changed too. The mentality of the club changed, and thus the mentality the fans had to follow. We end the decade a very different club to the one we began it as, even if we began it under the same owners. Pre-2010 seems like yesterday, and yet also seems like a lifetime ago. Typical city is not a thing anymore, even if we cling on to it still, as some form of nostalgic comfort blanket. The success too made the failures actually harder to take. The expectations have been so transformed, the bar has been raised, that the old rules do not apply anymore. But the problem with Pep is that in conjunction with City's wealth, he is and was and will be expected to win everything. If he had won everything, books would be written and column inches filled with talk about the anti-competitiveness of the Premier League. 
In fact, such articles were being written even before City had secured their first title. So predictable was it all. But now he's not winning everything in sight. He is the bald fool that so many rival fans and many in the media had hoped he would be when he arrived and thought he was after his first season. So it feels like there's always a battle to be fought, whatever happens on the pitch. But never mind, because we've seen things and experienced moments that the young me never thought possible. A football team that has on the whole done us proud, finally given us some bragging rights and established the club as one of the most talked about in world football. Little old City have arrived, and they're not going anywhere. If the next decade is as half as eventful as this one, we're in for one hell of a ride. Happy New Year, everyone, and here's to the next 10 years and beyond. Hi, I'm Colin Bell, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Howard Hawking reviewing the decade there. Now, uh, we're going to finish with Ask the Panel. Send them in for next week at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter. You can email through the website, bluemoonpodcast.com, and on Instagram as well. Just search for Blue Moon Podcast on there. Uh, first up, Jonathan on Twitter. Uh, why has City's domestic treble been so undervalued compared to how well Liverpool have done in this half of this season? Um, I think because by the time we did it, to some extent, City had already normalised that level of brilliance, the 100-point season before, um, and and the fact they were so far ahead of everybody um, just made it sort of the the expectation that they should be beating every team they play. Um, It does feel like the reaction to Liverpool doing well over this half of this season and the back half of last season has been much higher like in, uh, disproportionately higher than City's achievements over the last few years. I agree. I think there's a misrepresentation of how Liverpool have got to this point um, because they're sort of seen as having done it without spending money when, um, of course, they have done. And, I mean, Howard did a great bit, a long... Uh, last season now on the idea of um, just because they sold a player for 140 million or whatever it was they sold Coutinho for, 120 million maybe, um, and bought a 75 million pound player in. The finances are in a healthy state, of course, and and that net spend is, yeah, it's brilliant, but the players on the pitch should still be performing to their value. And I always remember him saying, just because James Milner was free doesn't mean you don't expect anything from him. You still expect him to play like the player that he is. and I think the fact that Liverpool have done it whilst spending and selling well um, it creates a different idea in, in people's mind. I also think there is maybe their style of play makes neutrals feel slightly differently about them again by the time Pep was doing this with City. He'd been doing it for a decade already nearly. Um, or you know, for, certainly for seven years he'd been playing this kind of football so it wasn't necessarily new. But what Klopp has done, um, it's a very different style and it, it's completely at odds with City's style, which is a great thing for the league. So have two teams that can be successful playing two very different ways. That's fantastic. But I think two are neutral um, without getting into the whole, you know, sort of Liverpool having lots of ex-players as pundits and in the press and all that. I think there are reasons why people see them slightly differently. City's style is a bit more serene. Does it feel as well, though, that uh, certainly this season, where City have failed this season, and let's be let's mm-hmm. have it right, City have failed at points in this season. You look at Norwich, look at the two Wolves games. It feels like people can't wait 
for City to fail. Yeah, but I think Liverpool will feel that as well because I mean Liverpool are going to win the league this season. That is going to happen. We've all got to deal with it, um, and they're probably. And I, th- I think almost certainly they're going to be our 100-point record, but crucially they won't be the first to do it. So that will always be our thing. Um, but next year, I think there will be that sense because it's just what happens when you're on top. People get bored of it and people want a shake-up. Um, and if they are doing this again next season and next Christmas they look like they walk into the league, I do think they will face some of the criticism that City have faced. I don't think. But, but, but City faced that criticism of making the league uncompetitive before they'd won the title. See, I'm going to go against the grain a little bit here, as City fans. I think there's a bit of revisionism about that 100 point season and how it was treated. I can remember listening to post-match interviews with Pep where the match of the day interviewers, I remember the, it stays in my mind, the 4-0 win at Swansea mid-season and I can specifically remember the commentator that day saying to him, Pep, I've never seen football like this in this country. And I do think that the back pages had that sort of stuff on them. I'm not saying it got quite the same level of hype and, and I'm not saying that we were always treated fairly within that. I think there were a lot of times that it was said, oh, well, you can't be a great team if you just do it one season. And of course, Liverpool aren't, aren't facing that. So I, I do accept there's a difference and I'm not trying to be like ultra straight and play this down the line. There is a disparity in how it's treated. But I also don't want there to be a revisionism and people to think that City have had no credit. Um, the treble, I mean, the treble, the, the, famously, there was, I won't bother naming him because I'm sure everybody knows who we're talking about. There's one journalist lost his head at half-time with the cup final and spent all summer talking about um, about how football was dead because City had, had won everything so easily when actually it turns out Watford were just terrible. Like <laughs> that, That's sort of what was happening there. And Liverpool aren't going to face that. But to fr- I think framing the question as why didn't City get credit, I do think in the 100-point season that we, we did get a reasonably fair crack of the whip, but there's always going to be contrarians and we don't have that same voice in the media that Liverpool have, so I think that's a contributing factor. Okay, uh, Brian Spears on Twitter asks, do you think Arteta left City for a managerial post because he knows Guardiola is going to sign a contract extension? No, I think he left because it's a great opportunity and I think it would be... Um, you know, Arsenal are clearly a club in his heart. Um, he, he played for them and was um, well respected by the fans there. Um, let's let's not get too bogged down in Arsenal because we all know that the bones of this question is: Is Pep Guardiola going to sign course, an extension? Of course, but I don't think that's why he left. I think he's left for the opportunity. Um, Pep's extension, I think, will probably depend on a lot of things. I I don't buy into the idea that he'll walk out in the summer. I think, of course, he could do, but. One of the things that I've seen said is that it would follow the pattern of his career to leave after four years. No, the pattern of Pep's career is working his contract. Barcelona, it was a rolling contract that he renewed every year until he decided it was time to leave, which, yes, was four years. At Bayern, he was in a different situation. He couldn't do that as a, as a new manager going in. So he signed a three-year contract and worked it. And at City, he's already outstayed his initial contract. And now he's got one that sees him for another um, th- that takes us to the end of next season. So I would still be, I'm not saying it would be shock of the century if he left, but I actually think he's more likely to stay for that fifth season and go rather than go this summer. I think if the challenge is there to go on and win the Champions League, if that challenge is still there um, after this summer and 
he's able to rejuvenate the squad again with, you know, let's have it right, a lot of spending power, um, then he might see fit to add another year to that and see what, what more he can develop. There is an interesting dynamic here, though, because Guardiola is going to leave at some point, mm-hmm. and you would think that, uh, that that there is one man who is currently a free agent that City might be looking mm-hmm. at in Pochettino. And there, beca- there comes a, a dynamic of, well, if it, it, how far ahead do you want to plan, knowing full well that Guardiola is your man and is... is doesn't leave City until he chooses to leave City. But that only depends on if Pep walks in the summer, because City aren't going to sack him, are they? Exactly. So the Pochettino dynamic probably becomes irrelevant, because do you think he won't be in a job at the start of next season? If He certainly will be in a job by the end of next season. So if Pep has stayed that one year, if he doesn't walk this summer, then the Pochettino issue goes out the window anyway. And to me... That's of course he's lined up sooner. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I know you have succession planning and everything, but I'm not sure. I'd imagine that if the feeling at City is that Pep would go in the summer, I'm sure somebody at City will have had some private talks with somebody in Pochettino's camp, because you'd be mad not to. Um, but but it's I, a long way off, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I don't think that's as much at play, or so much at play at the moment. Uh, Sarah asks on the emails, what do you think of City and United agreeing to a smaller allocation for the League Cup semi-finals for away fans? It's dreadful. Everybody, have, you, have you got a ticket? Are you going to miss out? Uh, we'll be trying for an away ticket. We would have been nailed on if we'd have had the full allocation. But last year was the first year in years that I've missed out on an Old Trafford ticket. So it might be the same for the Cup. Um, or We'll find out this week, basically, or beginning of next week. Um, I think it's really poor. Um I know that they cite safety concerns, but the police know how to deal with football matches. They've dealt with the increased allocations before without, I can't say, no problems, but they know Minimal how... problems. Yeah, and, and in a weird way, I think it's not just the people who would get away tickets who lose out here, because, of course, away tickets for derbies are always in particularly high demand. A lot of people never get to experience them, and they're great occasions. It's great to be in the away end for your biggest game of the season against your biggest rival, particularly if you win. But in a cup game, that dynamic changes, and I know no one's ever going to sit here and say, yeah, we love having loads of United fans at the Etihad, or we love it when they come singing the songs and they can make it hard for us and back their team. But actually... One of the things that you go to football for is the enjoyment of being in the stadium. And part of the live football experience in a big game is everything that that encompasses. And it's the atmosphere. And away fans in a semi-final in a derby are going to make a great atmosphere. And that is something that the home fans feed off as well that makes you get behind your team. It is a really rarefied occasion. This will be our third semi-final against United in 10 years. It's it's not that many. You know what I mean? If this comes around three times a decade, you want it to be a bit more memorable and not just feel like another league game. And so, although this gives more home fans a chance to go to the home legs, I actually think overall, as a spectacle, the home fans miss out because of this as well. And uh, finally, the final question of uh, 2019 on the Blue Moon podcast. Aside from 93-20, if you could pick one game from the last decade to relive at the Etihad, which one would it be? That's from Ryan on Twitter. At the Etihad, that's a great question. Um, from just before that one, just before ninety-three twenty, it'd be the the home derby the, with company scoring the winner, because that night we knew that we'd take it into our hands, and I think that night nobody thought that the the title was going to go to the wire. I think we all thought, having beaten United without them having a shot on target, um, 
and essentially watch Fergie show that he was scared of that City team for the first time um, in, in his team selection. Um, that, that was a huge moment and, and we spoke about it recently, Mancini shutting Fergie up on the touchline. Everything about that felt like, although we'd already had the semi-final the year before and obviously the 6-1 earlier that season, that felt like the real power shift. That felt like the moment that we we took everything back away from them. Um, and, and clearly City have been the dominant team in the City since then, even though United have won one league in that time. Uh, City have won four and won every domestic trophy. So, yeah, that that moment, to be able to look back on that and see everything that's come from it, whilst also remembering just the sheer elation in the stadium. The when com- Well, yeah, but even when company scored, that burst of, of um, the release of the tension... I'd I'd live that moment a thousand times over and never get bored of it. I got I got torn with this question because there's that that game sprung instantly to mind. I also thought the Liverpool game last season yeah. around about Christmas. Yeah. Um, I also thought of the Aston Villa game, yeah. uh, the four nil where where it took until half, after half time for the the, the uh, opening goal and again that release of tension when the ball mm. went in. But I couldn't stop myself coming round to wanting to enjoy the 90 minutes of City 5, Monaco 3. Just <laughs> that, that game that's a was great insane. Yeah. Just insane from start to finish. Yeah, along with, um, and this would never be the game that i choose, but along with the Spurs Champions League home leg last season, taking the how crushing that was, just for straight-up quality of football match, the two best football matches I've, I've ever been at by a distance. That, that Monaco game was incredible. It's a great just, show. It was just bonkers from start to finish, and that's why I love it. Uh, well, anyway, that's it for this week's show and the final show of 2019. Thank you very much for being a Blue Moon Podcast listener this year, and we hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you have, then please head over to iTunes and give the podcast a rating and a review. Special thanks to my guest today, Richard Burns. Thank you very much, David. And thank you for letting us use your front room after this Wolves match was rescheduled over Christmas. On New Year's Day, we'll have a very special Game of the Decade episode of the show where each of the panel discuss their best match from the last 10 years, all before City take on Everton, so tune in for that. Don't forget to support the show by becoming a Patreon backer for $2 a month. There is an extra weekly show, so you'll get an extra 15 minutes each week for your money, about an hour a month. And you'll also get occasional blogs by me and Richard as well. That's all on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. Thanks for listening and have a happy new year. We'll see you in 2020. Take care. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.